I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading of the Gospels, today we're looking at Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 37 down through the end of the chapter, verse 54, and also John chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, down through verse 21 of chapter 10. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So, first of all, let's get our bearings with regard to where we are in Jesus' ministry. He has just dined with Mary and Martha in Bethany, which was just outside Jerusalem, in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. We therefore assume that these events take place in Judea, somewhere around Jerusalem, but that's not certain. Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. That would place these events in the fall before his crucifixion. Now, we have some additional notes regarding chronology at the end of the reading today, at the end of John chapter 10, uh, after we read verse 21. In John chapter 9, we're going to see the healing of the blind man by Jesus, beginning with verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I'm he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him, because he opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him who had received his sight, And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. 
For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. Now, here's perhaps my favorite story of the Gospels. Not only is the story entertaining, it also captures the essence of the big problem with the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day. That problem was corruption. So here we have a man who wasn't just blind, he's born blind. Notice in verse 2 the question that Jesus' own disciples ask. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The Jewish paradigm obviously held that sickness was as a result of sin, despite the fact that the entire book of Job serves to dismiss that notion. If you'd like a clearer perspective regarding sickness, look at my article entitled Trial versus Chastisement. It's under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. We see in verse 34 that the Pharisees also held to this incorrect notion that all sickness was as a result of sin. I suppose the book of Job was not on the frequent reading list of the first century Jews. However, Jesus sets the record straight in verse 3 when he tells his disciples, he says, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. He becomes a source of real irritation to the Pharisees in this passage. After being healed by Jesus, the previously blind man faces intense, I mean intense, interrogation by the Pharisees. Did I mention intense? The Pharisees' first tactic is to discount the miracle by instructing the healed man and saying, hey man, just say it didn't really happen. Well, that failed. The man stuck to his story. Then they try to minimize the impact of the event by pointing out that no godly healer would do such on the Sabbath. The healed man just can't buy into that theory. He maintains that Jesus is a prophet from God. Now, watch it now. You're about to step over the line with these guys, these Jewish leaders. Don't you realize that they have the power to put you out of the synagogue if you don't cooperate with them? But how can the man deny what has just happened to himself? Then the healed man's parents, they get the call. And they're prompted to deny all of this really happened. They've already heard that to admit that Jesus healed their son means getting the church letter pulled, so to speak, kicked out of the synagogue, verses 22 and 23. His parents do acknowledge that he is their son, that he was once blind and now isn't. But how did it happen? Search us. Ask him. So what happens when you just report the facts? Facts that the Pharisees just don't want to hear. Well, let me say they do meet our expectations as we're going to see in just a few moments. Well, wait a minute now. Couldn't all of this have been avoided if Jesus had not gone to the measures he did to heal this man? After all, we know from other passages in the gospel accounts that people were miraculously healed by Jesus by actions as simple as merely touching the hem of his garment, as was the case in Matthew 14 and Mark chapter 6. It must be that the healing procedure Jesus uses in verses 6 and 7 was designed to challenge the hypocritical practice of Sabbath-keeping by these Pharisees. There we see that Jesus used his own saliva mixed with dirt to provide an ointment for the man's eyes, after which the man was instructed to go wash his eyes out in the pool of Siloam. By Pharisaical definition, that's work, and by the way, that's on the Sabbath day. Now, by the way, the law of Moses contained no restriction regarding the practice of doctoring on the Sabbath day. You see, 
oral additions to the law by pharisaical-style lawyers down through the centuries had determined more specific guidelines defining forbidden Sabbath practices. Therefore, even though the law of Moses did not forbid a doctor from healing on the Sabbath, the Pharisees had their own set of rules, and they had deemed it a violation of the Sabbath work principle. That's also interesting, and this is not in the written notes, it's also interesting that the Pharisees were on pretty safe ground making a rule that you can't heal on the Sabbath day miraculously because, hey, they couldn't do it anyway. Only Jesus could. So in John chapter 9, beginning with verse 24, they worked that blind man, so-called blind man, over all over again. Verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him, Again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you're teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Those hypocritical Pharisees, they're still irritated over Christ having healed the blind man from birth on the Sabbath. Of course, the real problem was the testimony of the people standing by watching this miracle. We already saw in verse 22 that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, he'd be kicked out of the synagogue. The Pharisees felt that they must do some damage control here. I mean, what are the people going to say after witnessing this? Well, after giving up on his parents, they turn their heavy-duty questioning on the blind man again, and they say, we know he's a sinner, talking about Jesus. That's what the Pharisees shout at the blind man. Frustrated, the blind man replies, don't know about that, but this I do know. I was once blind, but now I see. Well, the blind man's no theologian, but he makes a very doctrinally sound statement to the Pharisees in verse 31 when he says this, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Uh-oh, newly sighted man, you've just gone and said the politically incorrect thing now. 
Of course, he just did, in fact, capture the essence of Proverbs 28, 9, which says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Now, then there's Isaiah 59, 2. Here's what that one says. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, let's face it. The Pharisees certainly had their opportunities to heal this previously blind man themselves, had they the ability to do so. So what happens to this blind man now seeing on his first day with his eyesight? Well, he gets kicked out of the synagogue. The first time he ever lays eyes on a Pharisee and those arrogant white-robed Teflon-wearing holy act and prayer-chanting hypocrites, they kick him out of the synagogue. Ah, who wants to be a member of a synagogue like that anyway? So when the newly sighted man meets Jesus again after being ejected from the synagogue, Jesus shows him something better than mere religion, and he accepts in verses 35 through 38. That's when Jesus characterizes the events of this day in verse 39 when he says, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Hmm. Obviously, there is a spiritual lesson in that statement, and the Pharisees just can't let this opportunity to challenge Jesus pass by. So we're going to see that in just a moment. Well, some setups are just too easy, and we see that in verses 40 and 41, when the Pharisees began speaking in verse 40. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Well, some of the Pharisees overhear Jesus talking to the newly sighted man in verses 35 to 39. They're particularly interested in Jesus' acknowledgement of being the Son of God. Some setups are just too easy, as is the case in the question of the Pharisees when they asked Jesus in verse 40, Are we blind also? Nope, Jesus says. Blindness is not really what your problem is. It's much worse than that. With these words, Jesus goes into the monologue that we see in chapter 10. Fascinating monologue. So, in chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, we have a word for those rascal Pharisees. Verse 1, Most assuredly I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. 
The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So what about those rascal Pharisees that kicked the blind man out of the synagogue after he was healed in chapter 9? Well, now it's their turn to go around with Jesus, the Messiah. Let's do a shepherd analogy, shall we? So this shepherd theme will hit home with these Pharisees because of the use of this term by many of the Old Testament prophets with regard to leading the people of Israel. Jesus makes a sharp comparison between a good shepherd, well, like Jesus Christ, or hired hands like the Pharisees in this very passage. Read it through and you'll realize that Christ is tagging these Pharisees as thieves and robbers. After all, how else do you explain their self-serving actions of chapter 9 after ejecting the healed blind man from the synagogue? But back to the good shepherd. How committed is the good shepherd, Jesus? Well, verses 17 and 18, they say it all. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep and takes it back again. That, by the way, is a direct reference to his voluntary crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. Now, let's take a look at the characters of this analogy. The thieves and the robbers, well, those are the Pharisees. The shepherd, that's Jesus. The stranger, another reference to the Pharisees. Who's the doorkeeper? Well, I think I'm going with the Holy Spirit on this one. The door, Jesus says he's the door. The good shepherd, yeah, he says he's the good shepherd too. That's Jesus. The hireling, another reference to the Pharisees, and the other sheep that he mentions that may be a reference to Gentiles. Now, when you read this entire passage, I'll read it again, inserting the substitutions that I've just mentioned. And here's the bottom line to this passage. If you Pharisees really were shepherds instead of hired hands, you wouldn't have kicked this innocent man out of your synagogue as you did in chapter 9, verse 34. But since you did so, you just demonstrate that you're really just a bunch of thieves and robbers. Even though he speaks using this analogy, do you think these Pharisees got the message? Oh, I think so. Look at verses 19 to 21. Yeah, they understood. Now, let's look at some of the finer points of this parable, shall we? First of all, notice verse 5. It says, Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. There's a Greek double negative there, ume, and that adds strength. It's similar to our southern slang, wouldn't we say, there just ain't no way. There ain't no way they're going to follow a stranger. In verses 11 to 18, Jesus makes it clear that he'll be giving his life for the sheep. That's what a dedicated shepherd does, unlike the Pharisees who've just booted a man out of the synagogue. Notice the division among the Jews as a result of Jesus' words here. 
All of these were religious people, but some of them allowed their religion to get in the way of an authentic relationship with God. So here's the question. Since this parable was given in response to the Jews' question of John chapter 9, verse 40, how universal are the statements of this parable? In other words, are the thieves, robbers, and hirelings only a reference to the Pharisees in Jesus' day? Well, here's what I say. If the shoe fits, wear it. Generally speaking, professional religionists should take this parable to heart. If form is more important than meeting people's spiritual needs to you, then you put that shoe on. If you're absorbed in man-made traditions to which you have attached the same weight as Scripture, then you put the shoe on too. Let's face it, there are many practical Pharisees in fundamental churches today. Now let's have a note about chronology. We see that Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. There is no indication that Jesus had actually left Judea between then and this occasion. The Feast of Tabernacles takes place each year in the seventh month, which is Tishri, of the Jewish calendar. That places it in the September-October time frame in the fall season of the year. The chapter divisions in the Bible were added in 1205 by a guy named Stephen Langton. He is a professor in Paris and he later became Archbishop of Canterbury. He's the one who put these chapter divisions into a Vulgate edition of the Bible. Later on, it was Robert Stephanus, a Parisian book printer, who took over the verse divisions already indicated in the Hebrew Bible and assigned numbers to each of them within the chapter divisions already assigned by Stephen Langton. While riding on horseback from Paris to Lyons, he affixed his own verse divisions to the New Testament and he numbered them within the Langton chapter divisions. Prior to that time, when folks looked at Old and New Testament manuscripts, there were no divisions, just one continuous long epistle from beginning to end. And that being said, there seems to be a break in time between the occasions covered in John 9, 1, down through chapter 10, verse 21, and then, as I mentioned, a break between 21 and 22. Verse 22 says... Now, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now, that Feast of Dedication is now known as Hanukkah. It was established as a memorial to the purification and rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus on Kislev, which is December 25th, 165 B.C. So, there can be no question, therefore, that we're now in verse 22 in the 25th day of the ninth month, Kislev, and that's when this eight-day festival began each year. So, plainly stated, there seems to be a two-month lapse in time between John chapter 10, verse 21 and verse 22, even though when reading this passage, it appears that perhaps we're looking at one contiguous event. So, it's for that reason that in between John chapter 10, verse 21 and John chapter 10, verse 22, we've placed an entire section of Luke from Luke chapter 10, verse 37 to verse 54. And by the way, in another day's reading, we'll go into Luke 12 and all the way to Luke chapter 13, verse 21, before we get back to John chapter 10, verse 22. This chronological order is preferred because of the fig tree parable found in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. That would place the event found there between the seventh and ninth months of the year. So you see, it's before John chapter 10, verse 22. But Luke chapter 10, verse 37 through chapter 13, verse 21 seem to be chronologically contiguous. So now let's go to uh, Luke, 
Luke chapter 11, verse 37, when we see that dinner with a Pharisee turns, well, kind of ugly. Verse 37. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altars and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Now that seems nice, an invitation to dinner at a Pharisee's house. Well, on second thought, maybe this wasn't intended to be a friendly dinner after all. Things turn ugly when the host, who's a Pharisee, it says, marveled that Jesus did not wash his hands before eating and in front of all his professional religious buddies who were also present. To the Pharisees, this was a violation of their religious practice. Notice Mark's detail of this practice on another occasion in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defile, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. The market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Well, so you see, it was just another addendum to the law of Moses, one which, by the way, the Pharisees observed as though it were an integral part of the law of Moses. It's bad form for the host Pharisee to comment. He invites the reply and commentary from Jesus regarding their long list of man-made religious requirements. As a matter of fact... We observe that this statement and the reply of Jesus were made in the presence of not only other Pharisees, but scribes in verse 44 
and lawyers in verse 45 as well. Obviously, this was just another occasion in which the Jewish leadership sought to discredit Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus begins his reply by addressing them as fools. You've got to call them like you see them. As a matter of fact, Jesus several times in this discourse uses the phrase, woe to you. The Greek word for woe is ui. That means disaster. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, you bring disaster upon yourself. That's what woe to you means. Those are pretty strong words and a grave indictment against these Pharisees, these lawyers, and these scribes in this passage. So Jesus issues the following indictments against these Pharisees. He says, you make an issue of outward cleanness, but you ignore spiritual cleanness in verses 39 to 41. Then he accuses them of meticulously observing extreme tithing practices of even the smallest items, spices and herbs, while neglecting to love fellow Jews. An indictment also leveled by the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 6 against the Jews back in the 8th century B.C., that's in verse 42. Those Pharisees loved recognition and being honored in public places in verse 43. And then he accuses them of being as unclean as a grave. In Numbers chapter 19, verse 16, you'll see how very unclean that is. You see there that if one made contact with the grave, they were to be unclean seven days. Jesus is telling these Pharisees that while they look clean on the outside, they're just as unclean as a grave. Jesus makes a more direct statement to this regard when he calls them whited sepulchers in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. But though whited sepulchers, they're full of dead men's bones. And then scribes get mentioned here as well in verse 44. Then Jesus tears into the lawyers in the group. He says their interpretation of the law of Moses created difficult burdens upon other people. But their expertise in finding loopholes in the law... Well, that allowed them to circumvent the very same burdens in verse 46. Those lawyers, they honor the prophets of the Old Testament, but lawyers like them were actually responsible for the deaths of those very same prophets, he says in verses 47 to 51. And while Jesus is at it, he uses this opportunity to unravel a bit of Jewish history. That's when he refers to righteous men of the past who were persecuted and murdered because of their stand for God and righteousness. Jesus mentions the Old Testament prophets in verses 47 to 50. He references the death of Abel at the hand of Cain. That happened in Genesis chapter 4. He does so here in verse 51, along with Zacharias, also known as Zechariah, who was slain by Judah's king Joash back in 2 Kings chapter 12, also paralleled by 2 Chronicles 24. Jesus later brought up these murders again over in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35. And then with regard to these lawyers, their interpretation of the law, they've taken away the key of knowledge. In so doing, they decline to enter this knowledge themselves, and they also prevent others from doing so. We see that in verse 52. Obviously, this meal invitation had only been an opportunity for the Jewish leaders to discredit Jesus as evidenced in verses 53 and 54. Here's what those two verses say. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Now carefully note what brought on this pointed criticism by Jesus. What it was 
was giving the weight of God's law to extra-scriptural practices, things you just can't find in Scripture. I can't help but think of all the extra-scriptural practices that exist in churches this very day, practices that are treated with the same level of importance as, as scriptural standards for godly Christian living. What would Jesus say about that? Now listen, if it was wrong for the Pharisees back in the first century, well, then it's still wrong today. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker. 